Exodus chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 9 today. And let me, before we read, let me just sort of uh, bring us up to speed on where we were uh, this time last week. Remember, Exodus 5 was Israel realizing that they were going to have to wait on God's salvation, that there was a, an unexpected delay, unexpected from their perspective, not from the Lord. So Moses and Aaron go, they meet with Pharaoh for the first time, they make the bold declaration, let my people go, and Pharaoh just flatly refuses. And not only does he refuse, but he makes life miserable, even more miserable for the Israelites. He increases their workload. Through their misery, some of the Israelites actually take it upon themselves to go have an audience with Pharaoh. They plead. He turns them down and basically says, get back to work. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, Moses and the people are despondent. They don't quite know what to do. Their expectations have been wrecked. And so at the end of chapter 5, verse 22, Moses returns to the Lord and says, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. To which the Lord responds in 6.1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. So we're picking up at 6.2 here with the understanding that God's mighty act of deliverance for his people is about to begin in earnest that much of what we've had up to this point, and especially in chapter 5, was more or less just sort of priming the pump, getting all the characters in place and the people ready to see. We, we now know that Moses is God's servant. We know who God's people are, that God has a special bond of affection to them because they stand as his firstborn son among all the other nations. We know who the opposition is, that primarily it stands in the person of Pharaoh, who as king of Egypt is going to oppose the king of the universe to try to wield his authority and power over and against the authority and the power of God as he tries to reclaim his people. So when we get to 6-2, the people have figured out very quickly, Moses in particular, that if anything good is going to happen, if, if God is going to deliver, he's going to have to do it. It's very clear in chapter 5 that no amount of persuading or arguing or pleading, no creativity on their part is going to accomplish their freedom and their deliverance. This is going to have to be a single, sovereign, miraculous act by God to save his people. So now that they know that they're helpless, as we pick up at 6-2, what God wants his people to know, what he's going to communicate to Moses to communicate then to the rest of the people, now that they know that they're helpless, now what's important for them to know is something about God. I cannot stress this enough. That what God is doing in this passage is making himself known. It doesn't matter what they know about Pharaoh. It doesn't matter what they know about the Egyptians. It doesn't matter what their plans are. The question is, do you know who God is and what he has promised to do? 
So as we read through here, in verses 2 through 9, I want you to consider that what God is doing in this passage is making it clear that He reveals Himself or He makes Himself known by covenant-keeping acts. What God wants His people to know is that He will be revealed, He will be identified by covenant-keeping acts. So Exodus 6, verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is eternal life, to know you and your Son whom you have sent. We pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture and we see the way in which you make yourself known to your people by name, by the signification of covenant-keeping acts and demonstrations of your power, that we would be further encouraged and strengthened in our faith that we would turn our eyes to you, that we would find you to be the all-powerful, always-faithful, covenant-keeping God who redeems a weak and needy people for his glory and for our joy. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the things that we need to recognize right off is the fact that what holds this passage together is the repetition of God's name. Yahweh. We had this introduced to us in Exodus 3.14 when Moses says, okay, listen, you're going to send me to the people, and the people are going to ask, what is his name? Meaning, not necessarily give us a title, but tell us something about what he's like. What is he like? What is his name? And the Lord says, well, you tell them that I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am myself. Part of that in Exodus 3.14 is very unsatisfying, right? For God just simply to say, I'm just myself. Now, in part, who he is in himself has already been demonstrated by the way that he interacted and provided for 
and showed himself faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they have some idea of who God is, what his nature is like. But here in chapter 6, chapter 6 builds on that by filling in with more detail what exactly we are to know about God when we hear him say, I am who I am. When we say that God will be himself, what does that mean? And Exodus 6 is foundational to understanding who God is in his nature toward his people. And it's clear that he is wanting to attach his name to this statement. He's making a declaration of himself because of the repetition that you have in the passage. You have the Lord saying, I am Yahweh, four times in just a handful of verses. And in the structure of the passage, if you look down at verse 2, Verse 2, the opening statement begins with, you go tell the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And then verse 8, when the speech ends, ends on that same note, I am the Lord. He opens and he closes with the same statement to frame this whole passage by his name. So God is making himself known by a name, but the name we're going to see signifies a covenant-keeping redeemer. So we want, to make, we want to try to make three points. Number one, that God makes himself known progressively. That is to say, God makes himself known to his people bit by bit, in stages. Number two... That as God continues to make himself known, God is preeminently known as a covenant-keeping redeemer. That is what he will be most known by or most known as. And then number three, we want to rejoice in the fact that in Christ, our knowledge of who God is is deeper and better than the knowledge that Moses and the people have in Exodus chapter 6. God makes himself known progressively. He is preeminently known or most clearly known as a covenant-keeping redeemer. And in Christ, we know God better and deeper than the Old Testament saints did. Number one, God makes himself known progressively. There's a curious statement that God makes right up front where he says in verse 3, after saying in verse 2 that I am Yahweh, he says in verse 3, I appeared or I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. And some of you who like the names of God, this is the El Shaddai phrasing in the, in the Hebrew. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai or as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. What in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't seem to mean that until you get to Exodus 3 or Exodus 6, no one knew the name Yahweh because actually in Genesis, the name Yahweh shows up 
multiple times, and we're actually told in certain places that people called on the name of Yahweh or called on the name of the Lord. I think what God is saying here, or what we're to understand from this passage, is that the issue is not so much just a mere head knowledge, do you know this name and that name, but do you know me by what this name signifies or what it says about me? So the patriarchs knew God as all-powerful. They did not know him, and this is what we have to explore, they did not know him, as Moses and the people will come to know him, as the God who will be himself always. So let's try to break this down. You're going to need to hold your place here and go to Genesis chapter 17 as we try to flesh some of this out. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, or actually look, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that is Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. That's the, the name that he says he revealed himself by in Exodus 6.3. So here's a classic example of that. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. The Lord appears to Abram and says, I am the all-powerful God. Later, in Exodus 6, where we are this morning, God is saying, that is how I characteristically made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's how this works. What Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will know in a unique way concerning the Lord, they will know uniquely that God is an all-powerful creator and life-giver. So, case in point, they will know that God's power goes above even the forces of nature because God will take a barren woman who by nature cannot conceive and he will make a barren woman fruitful. That's power. Not only does he make a barren woman conceive, he makes a 90-year-old barren woman conceive. That is power on top of power. He demonstrates that his power surpasses the forces of nature. He demonstrates that his power and authority supersedes human conventions because God, by his power and authority, when Isaac gives, has twins through his wife, God says the older will serve the younger. By God's power, he turns human conventions around so that he says it's not the older who's going to be favored, it's going to be the younger. The younger is going to be the one who's going to carry this program further. God, by his power and authority, turns human conventions. God, by his power, reverses fortunes. He takes Joseph as a slave in Egypt and raises him up to be second in command of the world empire. 
God, by his power, takes evil and makes it good. Joseph says to his brothers, all that you did when you abused me, mistreated me, sold me into slavery, and everything that I encountered as a result of that, you intended that for evil, God intended that for good. God over and over and over again demonstrates that he has the power to create new realities for his people. And what he does with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is stupendous and is miraculous in the sense that he takes weak, impotent people and he creates them into something new. He establishes all of the parameters and ingredients and components that are necessary for a covenant blessing. I will establish, I will create a covenant for you. But notice, we're still, still in Genesis 17. Notice in Genesis 17, skip down to verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, go back to Exodus 6. In Exodus 6, 7, God says, I'm going to take this people for myself. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Doesn't that sound exactly like what he promised to Abraham in Genesis 17? Shake your head, yes. Yes, that sounds exactly like what he said to Abraham in Genesis 17. He also says in verse 8 that I will give them for their inheritance the land of Canaan, the promised land. That also is what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 17. So here is one of the distinctive differences in what Abraham and the patriarchs knew about God and what Moses and the people will know about God. The people, or I'm sorry, the patriarchs knew that God was powerful to create a covenant. What Moses and the people are going to learn is that he is powerful to keep his covenant. He is not merely a covenant maker, he is a covenant keeper. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go to their grave, they do not see the fulfillment of what God had promised to do for them, but Moses and the people will. So because... God appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and reveals himself as God Almighty, that knowledge of who God is can only run as far as what God says to them and what God does for them. And because there is more to say and more to do, that means that if he says more and does more for Moses and the people of Israel, they will know God more than what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew. Does that make sense? Why is this important? Seems very abstract. 
me give a couple reasons why recognizing this progressive way that God makes himself known to his people is important. Number one, it's important to recognize that God does this progressively because the only way that God's people come to know him is if God takes it upon himself to speak and to act. Abraham does not know that God is to be called or is to be known as an almighty God until God approaches him, tells him that's who and what he is, and then demonstrates that to him. The Israelites will not know who and what it means to say that God is always who he is until the Lord declares that name says something about himself, and then proceeds to act on it and to show it. This is an extreme act of kindness and grace that God gives to his people, that he would come to us to make himself known to us because we don't have the ability to find out what he is like unless he tells us himself who and what he is about. It also is important to recognize this because we understand or we begin to see that God reveals himself, he makes himself known to his people in two ways that always go hand in hand, and you cannot separate the two. That is, he makes himself known, whether it's to the patriarchs in Genesis or to the nation in Exodus, he always makes himself known by his word and by his works. If you think that you can know God as he really is and not know his word, not know what he has said about himself, you are kidding yourself. You and I do not have the ability to know and to understand what the invisible, immortal God is like. He must tell us what he is like, and he has done that in his word. Further, it's not enough just merely to know that this is what God says about himself. To truly know God, to know him as he is, is to know him by experience. This is why being here, it's, it's good that you're here. All right, let me, say that, let me say that up front. It's good that you're here. It is dangerous to be here. You know why it's dangerous to be here? It's dangerous to be here because you can hear God speaking, and because you hear or you know something about what God has said, you can think that you know God when you don't have the other side of the coin, which is not only do you know what God has revealed about himself, but you have come to know it for yourself. You have come to experience who God is in his actions towards you. We ought to continually ask ourselves over and over and over again, anytime we go to the Word, whether I'm reading privately or if I'm sitting under the preached Word or I'm in a Bible study with a group of people, these things that God is saying about Himself, do I know that to be true for me?
Have I seen evidence in my life that God is all-powerful? Has he reversed human nature for my benefit? Has he taken a heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in? Has he taken a man who loved sin and loved darkness and totally changed him so that now, even though he doesn't pursue it perfectly, he does love righteousness and loves the light? If all you know is simply what God said, but you don't know the reality of what that is by experience, you do not know God. My prayer and my encouragement to you, if you're here as a son or a daughter of God, is that if in your walk, if in your Christian life, you feel like you are only getting one of those two pieces. And by the way, there's an error on the other side as well, where you say, I'm going to come to know God purely by experience, and I don't really, I'm not going to get bogged down in the minutia of the Scriptures. I'll learn God my own way. It doesn't work that way either. My hope and prayer, if you're here as a child of God, is that if on either side of this equation, God making himself known by his word, or, and God making himself known by acting according to his word, if in either one of those areas you find yourself to be deficient, that this would be the means by which God stirs your heart to draw you to know him more fully. If you've been trying to know God purely on subjective experience, go to the Word. If your heart is cold and seemingly lifeless because all you do is go to a bare text, call out to God and ask Him to show Himself to you, to make Himself known to you in real life experience. That's what God does. One other thing we could say as to why this is important, not only is God the one who has to take the initiative, and he does that in his word and in his works, not only do we have to know God fully in both of, through both of those mediums, but it's also fascinating to be reminded again that because God is so much bigger than what we are, we never reach a point where we know everything about God. In light of what God is saying to Moses in Exodus 6, you understand that what he's saying is something like this. I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this way. And of course, if you read in Genesis, you say, that was a good and glorious revelation of God in the pages of Genesis. But by implication, what God is saying now in Exodus 6 is, this later revelation and experience of me is going to be better than what was before. Each new word, each new act of God is better than the one that came before it. You will never get to the end of marveling and enjoying God. Every word that you read 
draws you deeper into the mystery and the wonder of who God is, and you will never grow tired of Him. By the way, just as a side note, if God makes Himself known, not only through His Word, but through His, his works, there, there still is more work that God is going to do for His people, right? Correct? One, he's going to raise these decrepit bodies into glorified likeness to the body of Christ. He's going to bring us into a new heaven and new earth. He's going to do all of these things. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that for eternity, God will be saying to us, In the past, in the Old Testament, I revealed myself this way. In the New Testament, I revealed myself this way. In eternity, going forward, I will continually reveal myself as this. And we will spend forever, forever, learning more about the deep, deep riches of God. We will have eternity to know Him, and we will never, never know Him fully. And we will never tire of learning more. So God is revealing Himself progressively to His people. He is doing something significant in this moment in time with Moses and the people, And in Exodus chapter 6, what God wants His people to understand is that this name, I am, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, at its root signifies my present ongoing faithfulness to make good on every promise that I've made to my people. Back in Exodus chapter 6, Pick up at verse 6. He's remembered his covenant, figuratively speaking, God doesn't forget, but he's now turning to act on his covenant. And so he says in verse 6, Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. So, Who is Yahweh in verse 6? Yahweh is, the I am is the one who brings an enslaved people out of slavery into freedom. The I am is someone who comes to his people to deliver them from a power that they cannot break free from. The I am is someone who comes to them to redeem them, to purchase, to buy them out, to pay the necessary price, to expend the necessary energy to make a new reality for his people. That's one part. Verse 7, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh. God is not only a God who rescues His people. He's a God who binds Himself to His people. Listen to me, Edgewood. Listen, look. 
please do not fall for the notion or the temptation that you can enjoy the salvation of God, that God can save you from your sin and from the judgment that you deserve, and you keep God at arm's length. That's not the way that this covenant-keeping God works. Every single person that He redeems to make part of His people, He brings to Himself so that they will belong to Him and He will belong to them. He rescues them in verse 6. In verse 7, He binds Himself to them. And in verse 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. He rescues his people, he binds himself to his people, and he brings his people home. You understand, or at least I hope you do, this, this is our story. This is, this is us. This is what God has done for us. We were slaves to sin, and He set us free. He took us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He was not ashamed to be called our God. We once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. He has poured out His Spirit in our hearts so that we know He is always with us. And we know that because He has brought us out of our bondage and slavery, because He has bound, him, bound us to Himself, we know that He is and will take us safely home. We will reach the end goal and what our hearts desire most deeply. He will do that. If you are part of the covenant people of God, you get every part of the covenant. God does not dole out His covenant blessings to His children according to the ones that He likes better than the others. He also does not hold out and offer covenant blessings to undeserving people as if it were a buffet that you could come and select which portions of the covenant that you want. If God is going to make himself known to you, and he graciously has, if you are going to know him, if you are going to be brought into his covenant grace, you are going to be given all of the grace of God. even though you don't deserve the first part of it. And this is God saying, this is who you will know me to be. I am who I am. I am the one who is always present with his people. I am the one 
who comes to deliver and save. I am the one who brings a people to myself so that I can own them for my joy and my glory and for your joy and your greater glory. I am the one who remains with my people so that they come safely home. And here's number three. In Christ, as great and as glorious as what this is in Exodus 6, if Jesus is to be trusted at all, on Jesus' own lips and authority, we can say we know God to be even better than that. Turn to John 17. Jesus praying to his Father before he goes to the cross to accomplish redemption in his death and resurrection. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 6, and then again in verse 26. There are actually a couple other places we could look at, but for the sake of time. John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Does anyone hear an echo of Exodus in that? By my name, El Shaddai, I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they did not know me as you will know me, as the I Am. And Jesus comes and he says that as great as what that revelation of God was in the Old Testament and all of the acts of God that lined up with that I am name, Jesus says, I come to show even more of what God is like. I have revealed your name in a way that no one else has. And if you know Jesus, you know that deeper knowledge and truth. What a gift! He says further in verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus makes the Father known. The Father makes the Son known. The Spirit gives us the ability to know the Father and Son so that we can be drawn deeper and deeper into this abiding relationship that is God's very existence. As if to say, and if you come through Jesus, by the way, that's the only name that is going to grant you access, that's going to get you in. But as you come in, as you come to me through Jesus, you're going to find that the deeper and the further in you go, the bigger I become. Not smaller, not closer to running to the end. The further in you go, 
to who God is, the bigger he becomes. All of this, all of this, God has done out of sheer grace and loving kindness. God can give to his people no greater gift than himself. Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in order that we could know and have eternal life, Jesus goes on to say, I have made that name known. Do you know God by the name and work of Jesus Christ? If you know the Son, you know the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Father, and you also have the Spirit that the Father and the Son give. If you're here and you do not know, the name Jesus does not mean anything to you in a personal way. My plea to you would be to take up and read. Look at what God has said about himself. Look at what God has said and done through the person of his son and see if this God is not someone who is calling you to himself so that you can know him and enjoy eternal life through his son by the power of his spirit. He'll give it if you ask for it. Edgewood, my encouragement to you is to take this word of knowledge, this revelation that God has given to his people and to put God to the test as it were, to say, you have made it clear that you make yourself known by your word and by real acts in human history. I'm coming to you trusting that as I go to your word, you are going to make yourself known to me and that I will come to know you in real lived experience. Do that. Ask God to give you that kind of knowledge in who he is and see if he doesn't do it to your surprise and to your great joy. Let's pray. Long ago, and in many different ways, you spoke to your people through prophets and visions, through signs and wonders and miracles. But in these last days, God, you have spoken to us by your Son. The Word became flesh and lived among us. And we saw the glory of the only begotten Son of God. No one has seen you at any time, but your Son has explained you to us. We praise you, Father, that by sending your Son, you have given us a greater understanding of who you are in your name and character.
We thank you, Son, Jesus, for living and acting out the Word, both in your teaching and in your sacrifice. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking the truth of God's revelation, of His work, of the covenant provisions, and applying it and sealing it on our hearts and minds so that we could be made the people of God. Father, we ask that by your grace and kindness that you would create within us a hunger and a thirst to know you in increasingly deeper ways, and that the deeper that we go, the more that we would marvel as to the depths of your wisdom and riches. We pray this because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Amen. As we continue to praise him, I invite you to stand to your feet as we close with a song that speaks of our plea to him today, and that is to crown him as the God on the throne and the God above all. My soul is purchased 
by His blood My life is hid with Christ on high Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God Hallelujah Hallelujah and Son of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the one risen Son of God. Would you sing it out all your voices today? Hallelujah. Thank you for joining in a song of worship uh, to God. We do want to encourage you to fellowship with one another as you lead. But before we do that, we want to close with the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above you.